The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Iparianax, and this is The Candid Frame. With the rise of political activism in the last several years, especially with respect to the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been a revisiting to a time in the U.S. where social activism was just as important and just as controversial. And if there is one organization that embodied that in the 60s and early 70s, it was the Black Panthers a black empowerment movement that began in the streets of Oakland, California. Where some saw a group of violent extremists, others saw men and women who were a positive force in an underserved community. As always, the truth likely lies somewhere between those two extremes. Photographer Brian Chi, along with writer Yohuru Williams, explores this story through the people who actually lived it. In their book, Black Panthers, Portraits from an Unfinished Revolution, you see she's stunning black and white portraits of former members of the organization, which along with the accompanying text, reveals aspects of the Black Panther movement that is less about black and white and more about the strengths and failings of people when race, power, and economics come into conflict. Well, Brian, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book, but I, I want to get learned a little about you. Uh, okay. I, I saw that you uh, studied at the uh, Graduate School of Journalism at, at Berkeley. That's right. When, yeah. when were you there? I was there. I'll try and give you the short version, but I was there, let's see, about 98, 99. Oh, Okay. And then I completed a year, and then I went to Japan to do an internship with the Financial Times, the pink business paper. And at the, and then it, it went so well that they asked me to stay on, and I found some other radio journalism work. And so I didn't go back to Berkeley for another six or seven years, actually. They, they left the door open for me to, to come back and complete it. And then during that time while I was in Japan, uh, I got a, a Fulbright Fellowship, which I used to um, concentrate on photography, actually. Um, I was really sort of enamored of all of these. I don't think it was flash, but it was, uh, you know, these slideshows, basically, that were coming online. And, oh, okay. And it was this combination of, of beautiful still photos and then audio to go with it. And that just really kind of captured my imagination about, about what could be done to combine these two things that I was very interested in, the, the sort of human image and human voice. So your initial interest was that as a as a writer? Yeah, actually, all of my journalism was it started in print and then went more to radio, which has a little bit of a of a performance aspect to it, actually. Right. And then uh, when I went back to Berkeley, I knew I wanted to focus on uh, one particular photography project, which was about Islamic converts in prison, actually. 
it was there during that project. I, I actually got access to to go photograph in San Quentin uh, State Prison, which is a little bit north of San Francisco. And it was there that I met uh, a couple of Panthers, actually. Well, tell me how you how the how the story idea came about in the first place, and how you gained access. Sure. sure. So I, my I grew up near Oakland, actually, and so that's where the Panthers got their start. And I'd always known that. I had always known that, you know, even though I grew up in in kind of a, a lily white suburb, somehow I had picked up that the that the Panthers got their start in Oakland. And then the another hook was meeting these two guys in San Quentin, who had told me they had been Panthers back when the party was active in the late '60s and early '70s. I mean, that's when most of the action was happening with the party. Because I was working on this other project, it didn't really hit me at that time, but but something sank in because I, I started thinking about what happens to revolutionaries in America. Mm-hmm. And part of that was connected to my own family history, which is that my great-grandfathers, my two great-grandfathers on my father's side were revolutionary generals in the army that overthrew the last emperor of Japan. Wow, wow okay. That happened in 1911. So all of these things were kind of swimming around in my head when come 2011, I knew I wanted to start on a project that could really, you know, immerse myself in that would have some kind of long-lasting significance to it. And I and I had done enough projects that I I knew that what I was really interested in was portraiture. The project that I did on on the Islamic converts was was documentary fly on the wall type stuff. And I loved it. I just, uh, it, it wasn't kind of part of my nature to, to wait so much for, <laughs> for something to happen, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And so it became much more of a, I wanted to make this happen sort of feeling. So this was early 2011. So 2011 is this really important year for the project in a couple of ways. One, it was the first year that I, I started thinking about it and making early contact with uh, one particular panther, who eventually opened the door to the rest. And I can talk about that access in a second. But 2011 was also the 100-year anniversary of this revolution back in China. And so my parents were being, my, my parents were, um, by virtue of the fact that they were descendants of these these famous generals, were flown to China first class. They were, you know, ferried around in late model escalades on Beijing freeways that they had shut down specifically so these people could you know get to their destination which is kind of insane when mm-hmm. you think about Beijing traffic and at the same time so, so they had all these wild parties for like a week they just went from party to party to party um, and they were celebrities for this week and in the meantime I was in touch with a, a panther in Sacramento named Billy X Jennings who is a kind of historian and archivist for the party. And he was putting on the 45th anniversary celebration in Berkeley. And he was, you know, scrapping together to find a location and to raise money for this thing. And it was such a clear contrast between, you know, going back to this question of what happens to revolutionaries in America, you know, it's such a clear contrast between, oh, this is what happens when you win as opposed to when you don't win. And, and for people who may not be familiar with the Black Panthers, either because they're not old enough or they're outside of the country, why don't you provide sort of a brief synopsis of what the organization was uh, was about? Sure. So the the Black Panthers it was was originally called the Black Panther Party for Self Defense, and it 
started as a small group that came out of Oakland. Um, the name of the Black Panthers actually came from another group that came out of Lowndes County, I want to say Mississippi, but I, I might be wrong about that. The Lowndes County is correct. But they originally started as, as kind of the, the world's first cop watch, which means they carried two things, really, which were guns and law books, California law books, and drove around basically patrolling the police uh, in their area of Oakland, which at the time and, and was notorious for abusing black citizens. And they really captured, they, they started off small and they remained small, but there was a couple of incidents that really made them kind of national celebrities. And that was, one was the founder of the party, Huey P. Newton, uh, was in a shootout with some Oakland police officers. He was wounded. An officer named uh, Fry, I believe his name was John Fry, was killed. And he, Huey Newton went to jail for four, I believe it was about four years. And he became this uh, rallying point for people. And that's why you'll still hear people say free, you, you'll you'll see uh, signs that say free Huey, free Huey or references to to free Huey. And what they're talking about is the people protesting the imprisonment of Huey P. Newton. Mm -hmm. During that four years, the party really exploded in terms of growth, developing kind of chapters and branches, not in every state in the U.S., but almost every state. And that led to uh, offshoots in India, Australia, sympathetic relationships with, with a lot of communist countries, uh, at the time, China, Vietnam, Cuba, and they were, you know, for, for three or four years, they were this amazing vanguard, is what they call themselves, vanguard of the revolution, that allied themselves with not just, not just other black groups, but white groups, Latino groups, elderly groups, and this, this sort of web of alliances was, was really made them very, very powerful. A lot of people feel the image of the popular image of the Panthers is, is basically armed, armed black men with guns mm -hmm. trying to, to kill Whitey, right, for lack of, for lack of a, you know, to put it bluntly, to overthrow the, the U.S. government, U.S. power structure. Honestly speaking, the, what they're really, the work that they did the lasting work that they did was really in a, a series of programs that they had, which they, they called survival programs, which included a kind of free breakfast for children, sickle cell anemia testing. Uh, sickle cell anemia is a, is a disease that affects primarily African-Americans, which w received no attention from the mainstream medical system at that time. They had medical clinics. They had... Uh, in New York City, they, they, they uh, organized a lot of rent strikes to protest basically substandard housing. And in one chapter, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, they actually had their own ambulance service. They got a $30,000 grant from the, the Episcopalian Church, bought an ambulance, trained ambulance drivers, got EMT training, and basically served not just the, not just the African-American community there, but, but basically anybody that needed an ambulance could call them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, that, that disparity of the image between how they were seen in the community and how they were seen in popular, in, in popular media, mm -hmm. uh, was really a difference in black and white, especially when they, um, demonstrated at the, the state house, I think back in 67, 
Exactly. Or they did a demonstration up at the California State Assembly, and they were fully armed. Right. But at the time, it wasn't against the law to be fully armed, even even at the state house. But that exactly. image sort of sort of seared seared them in in terms of the you know in terms of the news media and in, in dominant culture as sort of that threat. These black people who wanted to incite violence, even though when you look at their ten point programs, much of that was more about ways of being able to achieve social justice and improve their own community. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things that impressed me most working on this over four, you know, four or five years was that there was a real vision behind everything that they did. And that vision was made operational through this 10-point platform and program, which were actually the principles that guided these very, very practical programs that served communities all throughout the country and, and the world. It, you can't really ignore the violence that was so that was part of the party. Mm-hmm. Some of it was internecine warfare. Some of it was, a lot of it was prompted from, through a program called COINTELPRO, which was the government's counterintelligence program originally set up to uh, surveil and disrupt communists, but it, it, it became a, a hammer specifically designed to, to crush the Black Panthers. And it was, it was very, very effective at doing that. Um, they had... Uh, they were able to get informers inside the party. Um, some of the stories in our book actually were about specifically how Panthers got set up. And to me, those were some of the those that's those are some of the my favorite parts of the book because when you talk to when you talk to Panthers, you know the they talk about getting set up all the time. And if you don't actually know how it happens, sometimes it it, it sounds like yeah 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 you were set up. Yeah. But when they go into the details, it, it's really really insidious how something like that was done. Were you able to access or read any of sort of the FBI, FBI reports? Uh, yes. Yeah, actually, a lot of those are online. The COINTELPRO was basically revealed from a group of white activists, actually, who literally broke into an FBI office in Pennsylvania, found these documents, and that exposed the whole program. And then it, 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 there was a, a committee, uh, the Church Commission was set up to investigate it, and it, it was really scathing against uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and, and, it, and the, the highest-ranking members of the FBI at that time were, were called out by name. Um, and this program was, was deemed, many aspects of it were deemed illegal and unconstitutional. Nobody behind that program ever suffered any real ramifications compared to you know, a lot of the Panthers who had been shot, killed, arrested, defamed. Some are still in exile now. So it was uh, basically the, the the might of the entire U.S. government was was brought to bear against against this group that was really struggling for for social change, not just for African Americans but for the oppressed classes of people. How did your understanding of the legacy of of the Panthers sort of change as you started to meet these people, mm-hmm. interview them? Photograph them, and right. and and you you would learn more from their experience, and not just from what you might be might have been reading from the FBI reports or from articles or from books. Everything that I just told you, you know, over the last maybe five ten minutes, I, I couldn't have told you that when I started this project. My uh, my knowledge about the Black Panthers was was actually quite limited. I still have nowhere near the the historical knowledge or the detailed knowledge of somebody like my my co-author on this book, Yehudu Williams. 
who's written several books about about the Panthers and about about the the Black Power era. You know, the more I continue, the more fascinated I became, the more I felt like uh, I knew that they were controversial, and I knew that there were um, very high-profile killings of Panther on Panther. There were high-profile assassinations against Panther leaders like Fred Hampton in Chicago. And I, it, it made me kind of tentative because I had never really done anything like that or worked on anything that was sort of this potentially controversial, uh, or even in some cases people might see it even as political. Mm-hmm. To me, I approached it as a, as a journalist because that's my training. And the, the, you know, the more that I listened to stories, the more I realized that there was, especially the stories of the rank and file members had never really been told. You know, all, most of the literature, movies, etc., focus on the leadership of the party which, uh, you know, I think that's just the nature of that, that's just the nature of, of media and, and history. You know, you don't really I kind of equate it to um, Game of Thrones. You know, you don't watch Game of Thrones to to, <laughs> to see what happens to the unsullied. You know, <laughs> yeah. you watch it for the palace intrigue and and to see the shot callers. And and, uh, and those shot you know, callers, the, I mean, those were really big personalities. Yeah, absolutely. Eldridge Cleaver, you know, Hugh P. Newton. Right. All of those people were like, it's, 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 it's no surprise that they garnered so much attention. But as you said, the, the organization was largely made up of the, the rank and file, the people who were out there in the field for the most yeah. part that were, their names may not have been known, but who are really putting in much of the work. Exactly. And I think to, to go back to your question, that was, Something that that really, you know, the more shoots I did, the more people I was meeting the rank and file. Those were the the people that I had immediate access to. I, I was able to photograph certain party leaders, but that was, you know, they had gotten so much attention. I think that it was for them. They didn't feel like they were getting that much out of it. And at, at the time, like I, they didn't know who I was. You know, I. It's not like I had a big name supporting me. I was doing this all on my own uh, up until kind of the last year when when the book contract came together. But the rank and file, you know, the more they were the ones that really supported me and and kind of put me in touch with other chapters and other rank and file members. Eventually, I was able to gain the support of an official, the Black Panther Party Alumni Association. Mm Mm-hmm. There's there's different groups and associations and things and and that's one of the main ones and you know it's through their sort of imprimatur that I was able to really get a, get a lot more access. Did you have a particular breakthrough moment in terms of feeling like you had sort of moved past that barrier of reticence and, and doubt about you and what you were trying to do and felt like okay now now it's moving? Yeah, I mean there was there was always. You know, it was kind of a steady buildup. I think I don't know if there is one one breakthrough moment because even even I, I would I think once I sort of presented myself officially to the alumni association, that was definitely an important moment because after that, you know, they put out the word about who I was and what I was trying to do, and before it was it was piecemeal. But even after that, I you know I, I still had to ask permission from from local people when I wanted to do a photo shoot and coordinate with them and. And even people that came to shoot, some of them came to check me out and some, you know, didn't like what they saw or Mm -hmm. they didn't like the way I was photographing and they declined to participate, which was fine. You know, this was, 
I, I was there to, to tell their stories. Um, and if, you know, if they didn't think I was the right person to do that, then that was, you know, that was their choice. I do remember, you know, this one, we had a kind of a come to Jesus talk with the National Alumni Association. And I, I do remember, you know, it was getting down to, we were just getting down to it. You know, they asked me what I saw, where, what I was going to do with these things. And, and I told them, I was very honest. I said, I, I don't know. All of this is kind of an act of faith at this point, but I know that I wanted that, that I, I want to do it right. And I want to do it big. And I, I think you've done enough of this work to know when, when you have a moment, you know, there's this, there's a kind of silence. And even though we were on the phone and we couldn't see each other, I, I knew that what I said had made a difference. Hmm. Uh, I think that, that, kind of pushed our relationship forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there was ever a real breakthrough, but it was just very step-by-step. Step. There's, there's certain signals that I was being accepted because they did put me in touch with uh, political prisoners. Political prisoners are, are, are Panthers that have been in jail, a lot of them for 40 years. The, the, one, the, the three guys that I, that I was able to photograph and interview were all in jail for, for killing cops in New York. They... Uh, still say they're innocent, um, which puts them in this really tough position because they, they really can't get parole unless they admit guilt. Mm-hmm. But they've been saying for 40 years that, that, that they haven't done it, that they're, that they're innocent. And now they're, they're sort of stuck in this place where if they actually said, okay, I actually did do it, then it calls into question everything that they've said over the last 40 years. So it's this really, it's a, they're in a very tight pinch but these, you know, on the, on the issue of access, I would have never been able to even contact these people without the, the sort of verification and, and people vouching for me uh, from the outside um, because they are, they're very protective of, the Panthers are very protective of, these, of the, their political prisoners. Tell me about the, the choice that you made in terms of how you wanted to photograph uh, these subjects. Because you mentioned that you're, Prison converts to Islam is more documentary style, while these are more right. sort of traditional portraiture. Tell me about the thought process in terms of your choices with respect to that. Sure. So part of it was our, I guess, part of it was aesthetic and artistic, and and part of it was there were just practical decisions. I knew that I ultimately wanted to be able to print very very large and have very high fidelity, so I. I knew that medium format. Actually, I originally thought I would shoot on four by five, but I just didn't think I had the technical skills to 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 manage that at the time. So I settled on medium format film. I considered medium format digital, but it just the the price of one of those backs is insane. <laughs> They're beautiful. I've I've had the chance to shoot on them, and the the files are gorgeous. But but you know that's the price. That's like a down payment on the house. Or <laughs> So I shot film, which was my first real film project, and I used a Hasselblad 503CW, which, uh, honestly, I chose for very shallow reasons. A photographer whose work I really admired shot with that camera, and I had access to one. And it's a square frame camera. It's a a 6x6 square frame camera, and if I had to do it again, I might choose... A different frame because you're basically trying to put vertical human beings into a square frame. Um, so it, it took me a while to actually figure out what what to do with that frame um, and how to kind of photograph how to photograph people 
in a way that that really conveyed you know their sort of just their size and grandeur in terms of what they've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, to me, these 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 guys are larger than life, and so on. A lot of the the pictures you'll see they're they're actually leaving the frame. Parts of their bodies are, are leaving the frame, and to me that was just a. Those are some of the pictures that I that I like the most because it it really does feel like the frame the frame isn't big. I wanted the, it to show like the frame wasn't big enough for them. And with the lighting, because I I can understand uh-huh. that you wanted to sort of achieve it. A uniformity of look, but you didn't necessarily want each photograph to look the same. Right, right. So, so you can can you talk about the lighting and also how you sort of engaged your subjects because you know they're not just standing there like looking at the camera where it's just a sort of a headshot. Each sort of takes up that square frame in a very unique way. And if you can talk a little bit about how you sort of achieve that with each subject, sure. I mentioned the there's a, a sort of practical element to this. One is that um. You know, I had to kind of squeeze in these photo shoots in in between work and uh, work and life, and like I said, this was all self funded. So the the way that we did it is we arranged shoots in different cities, uh, so that I I knew I could I could try and shoot you know maybe ten fifteen people all in the same day, which meant you know same lighting setup at least for that studio. And working really quickly, um, a lot of these people, I, you know, on some, most of them, I didn't shoot more than a roll of film. So that's twelve frames on a on a medium format roll. We set it up like we set it up like a like a, a small party. You know, we had catering, we had music and wine, and it was it was a good time. I mean, these people were they're kind of uh, I wanted to treat them like stars, just because I enjoy giving people that experience who probably don't you know would never have it otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's part of setting this mood, you know, for, for what the photo shoot is going to be. So when they walk in, they see a very welcoming atmosphere. You know, I'm a stranger to them. You know, your, your, your listeners can't see, but I'm, you know, I'm not African-American. So, you know, there's, a, you know, there's, there's things that, that separate us already before the photo shoot even begins. So I wanted to create this very welcoming atmosphere. The lighting is... Fairly basic. It's a white background. I had a beauty dish directly in front and overhead, and then I had uh, some fill lights. And the, the the beauty dish never changed. The overhead beauty dish never changed. That my fills changed depending on what the studio setup was. Either from I had a big with the the big round dish. I can't remember Ellen Chrome, big Ellen Chrome okay. dish behind me on one, which worked really well, except when I got really close because then I blocked out all the light. <laughs> And then at one point, we switched to two strips on the side, two vertical strip lights for fill. And that kind of became the go-to setup, actually. I have to sort of tell this sort of side story. One of the shoots that we did, um, I used the this massive Polaroid camera. It's a 20 by 24 camera. Are you familiar with this thing? Yeah, it's like yeah, the huge. So I had the chance to shoot on this thing, and it's super expensive. It's it's literally like they gave me a deal on the shots, and they were still two hundred. It was still two hundred dollars for <laughs> one shot. Yeah. And I had two pretty prominent Panthers. One was Kathleen Cleaver, uh, you know, former wife of Eldridge Cleaver, who was one of the party party leaders, and another Panther named Jamal Joseph, who is now a professor, film professor at Columbia. And this thing is the size of a dishwasher, like so with like a, a massive lens on the end of it. It looks like you're like, it's like looking through a portal. And I knew I only had one shot for each of these. Cause that's all I could afford. 
And so I really, you know, asked myself, what's going to make these shots work? And, you know, it just, it was just emotional engagement was, was the answer. And so I had worked up a couple of questions that I wanted to ask each person. And for Kathleen, I asked her, you know, once I, I asked her to just stand how she would normally stand and to be comfortable, basically to, to stand in something that was comfortable for her. And then I kind of got into these sort of probing questions. And the one that I really, that I think elicited something from her was when I, I asked her, you know, what, what was worse? Was it worse being betrayed by the police or being betrayed by people within the party? Because I knew part of her own history. I had studied mm-hmm. up on it. And she gave me the answer that I knew she would give me, which is, it's, of course, it's much worse to be betrayed by someone that you considered a friend and, and loved one, somebody on your side. I, she started to tell me the story, and I said, no, I, I don't want you to tell me the story, but I just want you to remember that feeling of the first time that you realized you had been betrayed or set up, and just close your eyes and try and, and visualize that moment and bring yourself back to that moment. And then I, and I said, I'm going to count to three, and on three, I want you to just bring all of that out just in your eyes. And she did it. And it was like the first time I had ever done something like that, you know, to kind of do this sort of psychological probing mm-hmm. of a subject. And it, it really worked. I mean, the, the image came out great. You can see it on my website. It's not part of the book. But the reason I mention this is that it just changed the way that I photographed. And in, in terms of like getting somebody to, to sort of open up or to relate. You know, it's this very, very artificial situation. You've got lights, you've got people off to the left and the right, and they're snacking and drinking wine, and there's a lot of laughter. And, and so it's, it's a, and meanwhile, they're sitting on an apple box looking at me, looking at them. Mm-hmm. You know, you really want to try and create, it amidst all of this, this artifice, you're really trying to create something real, a real relationship, even if it's you know, just for the, the four or five minutes that you that you have with them. And for some people, it was that matter of uh, asking questions like this yeah. while still being very respectful, right? I never, I, I would ask them questions and I would tell them, like, I don't want to know, don't actually tell me the answer. I just want you to think about it. Uh, other times they would start telling, they would tell me the story and it was so awesome that I, you know, I just put the camera aside and let them let them talk. Yeah, but even that creates a relationship, and it helps them forget that they're in this fairly unusual, strange, even uncomfortable situation. Sometimes it's just about noticing really small things. I had one uh, one person who was obviously uncomfortable. Her her mouth was really dry, and I could see her like kind of you know smacking her smacking her lips and just trying to get something going there. And I actually stopped and I I said, "Oh, it looks like you need some." it looks like you need some water. And I said, hold on. And I asked my assistant to go get her a cup of water. And in that meantime, I'm like, how are you doing? And, you know, are you comfortable with this? And it was just this, this constant dialogue and showing that I'm, you know, really treating them like a, like a special guest, which is what they were. And just like everything that you do as a photographer sends a signal, I think, especially when you're in this kind of very intimate, close-up setting you know i think i was i shot with a it was a 120 millimeter macro so i could get pretty close and on some of them you know i'm probably only a couple of feet away and it's a fairly big camera and it's unusual looking especially these days when most people are shooting with 
with some form of digital camera. But even that is a, it's kind of a, it's a choice that you make. And I think that, you know, they can see my assistant loading film and us changing cartridges and they can see something's going on, right? This isn't just a, somebody with, with an iPhone taking a group shot. Uh, there was a lot of, they can see a lot of care and precision being given to them. I also did test shots with a, you know, with a regular Nikon just so I could flip it around and show them the back and show them what it's going to look like. And again, that was, you know, I, I was confident in my lighting and metering, so I didn't have to do that, but it was about putting them at ease and making them feel comfortable with, with the process and, and feel like, Oh, there, something is going to look good by the end of this. You know, what's interesting is that even though your time with them is brief relative to what you might do with a documentary project mm-hmm. where you're spending yeah. days or weeks or maybe even months, right. that there's a level of intimacy that is created within a finite period of time. And not to say that with documentary uh, photography that there isn't some level of intimacy. I think it's slightly different. But right. is that, was that sort of part of the appeal of shooting it in the way that you had it, that you were able to sort of, using the techniques you just described, have a connection and elicit something from your subject that you might not be able to do from shooting it from the sort of the distant, relative, relatively objective perspective of, of a fly on the wall? I, I think it became it, it became a strong attraction, like I said, after working with that, that massive Polaroid camera, understanding that it, it was it was quite empowering for me because I didn't really there's a certain amount of performance that you have to do. It's hopefully a sincere performance in front of the subject. And I didn't know if I could actually do that. But the more I did it, the the more I realized uh, that this is something I can do and that I might actually be good at it. It might be the one thing that can kind of distinguish me. You know, my uh, lighting and things like that are, are okay, but it, it's it's not what I remember from a photo shoot. It's actually those small moments that you can create with a subject. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the things that I think are really, you know, I, when, I, when I close my eyes and think about this, I, I can still remember certain photos that I took because it was just like the whole world fell away, you know, and it was just, yeah. it's just this person sitting in, in front of my camera and we're, we're having a dialogue either with or without words that uh, led to some uh, some photos that, I, that I'm really proud of, actually. What did you learn about how these people sort of came to term with their life after the Panthers? Because as, you, as we've discussed, you know, there were... There was efforts by the government in terms of imprisoning people for, for crimes or setting them up or for crimes that they had actually committed. But there's also sort of infighting and schisms within the organization. How did these people sort of express what they thought of not only their time with the Panthers, but their lives subsequently? Um, that's such a really good question. The Let me see if I can do it justice. Um, I think after the party... Okay, so the the main activities of the party when it was national basically came to an end in 1973. And at that time, Huey Newton basically wanted all of the chapters to shut down and all of the staff to come to Oakland. Not just staff, but members. And the idea was to really take over Oakland and make this a a kind of beachhead. And from there, they would expand back out again. But once he did that, it, it basically ended the party as, as we think of it as this national organization. 
the party did continue until under that name until the 80s and it, it still con- it still continued with the newspaper um, they had a very famous school called the Oakland Community School that was started by the Panthers it went on to win awards from the California um, state legislature actually <laughs> the same group that the Panthers had earlier tried to, to you know demonstrate with their guns after that there was uh, honestly, there was a lot of a lot of self medication going on. A lot of people were in shock. You know, they didn't have the words. They didn't have PTSD. There wasn't the understanding of that kind of phenomenon. But you had basically people that had been living under warlike conditions for for many years, and there they, there were enemies without and within. And a lot of Panthers told me that for many years they didn't want to have anything to do with other Panthers. Um, a lot of them got into drugs, alcohol, and they, they talk about this with a lot of shame, actually, this, this part of their life experience, because this was exactly the kind of thing that they were trying to fight against as Panthers, right? And it wasn't until, a lot of them said until the 90s, actually, when there was kind of efforts to rebuild relationships, to have gatherings, alumni gatherings that started popping up around different parts of the country. I think there were certain key people that brought people back together. And it was a a sort of a slow process. I mean, everyone, you know, I'm generalizing somewhat here, but but I did hear this from, from quite a few people. What's interesting is that almost, well, almost everybody that I photographed and interviewed for the book is somehow still involved in community community building they're they're very socially aware and involved still and part of that might be self-selection you know the people that are still in touch with other panthers and that made themselves sort of available for this project but i think overall there's a feeling of of pride in what they did and what they accomplished uh last year was the 50th anniversary of the party um in oakland uh sorry in uh, october major celebrations in oakland at the oakland museum uh, of California, they had a, a really big exhibition, and I almost they, they you know they uh, showed almost the entire book actually up on the wall there. So that was very nice. But it was a it was a very nice moment of validation, I think, for who the Pan- who the Panthers were, what they were trying to do, what lessons they can offer now to especially to groups like um, Black Lives Matter uh, or Million Hoodies. Um, I know there's a lot of conversations and dialogues am- among those uh, organizers with Panthers. Um, I actually did a panel discussion in, at the LA Public Library with uh, three leaders of the party who happened to be women and a Black Lives Matter organizer. It was, it was uh, an amazing discussion that really showed to me how much the, the Panthers really reflected very, very deeply on their experience. And one of the one of the audience members who was a Black Lives Matter uh, activist, you know, asked this really great question. You know, what what do you suggest we do when a member of your organization kind of violates the principles of the organization and really makes the organization look bad? Basically, there was somebody with with BLM that was doing something renegade, and she wanted to know what the Panthers suggested. And their answer was uh, actually, was, I think it was Erica Huggins, actually who said, you know, I, I would not do what we did, which was to 
really copied the dominant social paradigm of, of, of might, might equals right. Because a lot of the, the punishment that the Panthers meted out was corporal. Mm-hmm. And her, her answer and their answer as, as a group was, you really need to look at the principles of your organization as well as your own personal principles and make sure that whatever actions you take are in line with, with those things. And I just thought this was an answer that, that very few people could give you in the world unless you had been through that experience. Yeah. Does that answer you? Does that answer Yeah, yeah that does. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier your own family history uh-huh. um, in terms of the, your, your family's being part of that revolutionary effort in, in China and with Japan. And you, know, you hear history like that within your family, mm-hmm. and it's more so sort of in the abstract. Right. And this project provides you to put like a really intimate and personal face and story to what it means to be a revolutionary. Yeah. And I'm wondering how this experience has helped you to sort of to think about your own family's history with respect to that. You know, what it really makes me think of is – you know, the, the, the Panthers had to improvise everything. You know, they were basically making up things as, as they went along. And there was things that they had to do there. You know, they would be the first to tell you that they were not angels and that they could not afford to be angels in order to, to accomplish what they needed to accomplish, what they wanted to accomplish, and, and to survive for their own survival. You know, if I, you know, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to, to think back to, you know, what my great grandfathers had to do. I mean, they were kind of, you know, what I know about them now is that they were somewhat sort of philosopher, philosopher warrior types, I guess you could call it that. But I, I imagine that they they went through hell, actually. And I imagine that they're, you know, as as much as they are praised now in China, I know that there's they they probably did things that they would not be proud of, but that were to serve a greater, to serve a greater good, to serve a greater cause. And that's kind of an age old, that's a a struggle that will never be solved, right? Um, This, uh, do the means justify the ends? It it kind of makes me realize that my great grandfathers must have been some, some pretty crazy badasses actually (laughs) 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 to, to wage an all-out war against against an empire and uh, and to win actually is insane. I mean, it's the stuff of movies. It's literally they they make movies about this revolution, and you know you'll see you'll see actors playing the, the characters of my um, uh, great grandfather's one in particular. And again, all of these are a hundred years old, but I, I imagine if you were on the ground with them back back then, you know the, the things that they had to sacrifice. Did they? Did they sacrifice their own personal values or the values that they were trying to instill through the revolution? I'm sure they did. I'm sure they had to, actually. Well, thank you for that. Sure. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Mm. Oh, gosh hit on my weak spot because I feel like my my arts education and my actual awareness of of what's happening in in the broader world of photography is very limited but 
I know this is a, a photography podcast, but this guy's a visual artist. He's already fairly well known, uh, but his name is, is, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Theaster Gates. Have you heard of him? No, no. Tell me about no. him. He is a kind of visual artist, performance artist, but what he does is really amazing because he builds a lot of communities around his art. Um, and part of his art is, is based on, on actual spaces. Like he bought a, a bank, this old like bank building from the 1920s that was going to be torn down. And he bought it for like a dollar from Rahm Emanuel in Chicago and turned it into this kind of arts repository and art space. And he's done this in, on different levels and different scales. But it's, it's, a, it's amazing because it's not just, you know, he's not just creating objects for sale in galleries, although some of his stuff sells for a lot of money. He repurposes a lot of salvaged materials, especially from deteriorated African-American communities. Like some of his work is taken from, he stripped out the, the basketball the flooring of a basketball court from a school that had been shut down. It was a school that, that served predominantly African-American students, and he turned it into this mural. He's done other things with like the roof of, of churches. And I, I think I just find it really inspiring because it's there's a, a very practical and social purpose to these things. And he, he has his own foundation that you know trains uh, trains young people on masonry and on you know the skills that they would need to work with these kinds of materials. So it's also like this job training program. It's just this very visionary use of use of his artistic talents to you know it's it's not it's not this navel gazing kind of yeah. <laughs> MFA type art. But I just find that very 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 visionary and very inspiring. Oh, I look forward to checking that out. That sounds fascinating. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's Theaster Gates. Like T-H Easter <laughs> is okay. how, you, how you spell it. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your, for your time and your, and your generosity. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed uh, having a chance to talk with you. Oh, I did too. Thank you. I, I hope it was okay for you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Brian for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting brianshee.com. Thanks for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Tim O. Peter Grunland from Sweden and Vinnie1971 from the Netherlands for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our donate button on the candid frame website or the show notes. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Alan Doyle. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we presented here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.